Capital Allocators is brought to you by 10 East, an investment platform for sophisticated investors to access private markets. 10 East brings benefits of having your own family office without the cost and headaches of doing so. It's founded and led by Michael LaFell, former deputy executive managing member of Davidson Kempner. Michael and his investment team offer members the opportunity to co-invest by offering at their discretion. Michael and his team source, diligence, and commit material personal capital to each investment. The opportunities shared on the Tennis platform offer exposure to private credit, real estate, niche venture and private equity, and other idiosyncratic investments that typically aren't available through traditional channels. The principals have over a decade track record of investing in these types of exposures across more than 350 transactions. Post-investment, the Tendies team conducts ongoing monitoring and reporting, just as you'd expect from an institutional investment organization. I've known Michael for about a decade, and after becoming impressed by the quality of Tendies offerings, its research process, and high-quality investment team, I became an advisor to the organization and investor in multiple offerings. You can learn more and join me as a member at 10east.co. That's the number 10, east.co. Capital Allocators is brought to you by SRS Aquium. Since 2007, SRS Aquium has been obsessed with a single purpose, to simplify the administration of M&A deals so that deal parties and their advisors can focus on bigger issues. SRS Aquium was the pioneer in professional shareholder representation, digital M&A payments, and online stockholder solicitation, and they continue to raise bars and set industry standards. Case in point, their new VDR, which is changing the way deal parties think about virtual data rooms. No more tracking down thumb drives or asking how the VDR bill got so high. SRS Aquium keeps deal documents securely stored on the cloud for as long as you want for one flat rate. And working with SRS Aquium means you get the simplicity and stability of a single best-in-class partner from the pitch book through the last dollar out. 50% of U.S. private equity firms and 40% of venture capital firms worldwide count on SRS Aquium to optimize their deal process. To learn more about how SRS Aquium is simply the smartest way to run a deal, head to srsaquium.com. That's S-R-S-A-C-Q-U-I-O-M dot com. Hello, I'm Ted Seides, and this is Capital Allocators. This show is an open exploration of the people and process behind capital allocation. Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can keep up to date by visiting CapitalAllocators.com. My guest on today's show is Alex Rodriguez. Alex had a 25-year professional baseball career, highlighted by appearing in 14 Major League Baseball All-Star Games, winning the 2009 World Series Championship as a member of my New York Yankees, and hitting 696 home runs, including more Grand Slams than any other player in history. He's also the chairman and CEO of A-Rod Corp., an investment holding company he started at age 20 in 1995 that today spans investments in real estate, venture capital, a SPAC, and recently announced the Minnesota Timberwolves basketball team. 
Our conversation covers Alex's early interest in business, lessons he learned from Warren Buffett, Magic Johnson, and Greg Norman, the strategy of A-Rod Corp., time management, leadership, and identification of partners. We then turn to his investment activities in real estate, the Slam Corp SPAC, venture capital, and the Minnesota Timberwolves, and we close discussing Alex's reflections on his year-long suspension from baseball in 2014 and the future of A-Rod Corp. Please enjoy this special conversation with Alex Rodriguez. Alex, thanks so much for joining me. It is great to be here. I'd love to start with how you first got interested in business and investing. Well, I'm 45 now. I started thinking about it when I was probably 10. I call it my two Bs, baseball and business. That was my 10-year-old thought. My 45-year-old is the three Bs, baseball, business, and my babies that are no longer babies. They're teenage girls. They're 16 and 13. But that's kind of like the ethos of my world, those three. And I think just from a business perspective, I wanted it to be a lot like my father. He was a baseball player and a banker, like a mez lender. He was also an entrepreneur before people knew what that word meant. And we had our own shoe store in our apartment in Washington Heights in New York. I thought that was really cool. They called my father like the calculator because obviously there was no iPhones and he can like figure out all the numbers in his head. And in many ways, I'm not very good at English, but I'm pretty good at math. So uh, I'm a lot like him. And then I remember watching him and he had all these suits and white shirts. And again, if you go to my closets, I have a few suits and, and a bunch of white shirts. And I love baseball. So I'm a lot like my father in many ways. And that's where I first started having kind of this entrepreneur spirit of building teams and thinking about sports and business at an early age. When did that turn into investing? Yeah, investing started because I was fearful. I saw this 30 for 30 broke and other shows and read articles about athletes and entertainers running into some tough luck post their careers. And that scared the crap out of me. I just started looking at some data right as a teenager. And what I saw was the three things that just jumped off the page. One, baseball players play an average of five and a half years. You play 90% of your career from age 20 to 30. And you make 90% of your income from age 20 to 30. And less than 5% of baseball players at the professional level have a college degree. If you look at those three data points, I would short the stock of who is going to be long-term wealthy. So because of those data points and the possibilities of running into financial issues, I thought about investing in my early 20s. How'd you start to learn? It started with my mom. My mother had several jobs. She was a secretary in the morning and served tables at night. And I remember her bringing her tip money home. And as a 10, 11-year-old kid here, now we're in Miami, my father had left when I was 10. I remember she would go into her master bedroom and I would help her get the mattress up. And she would take her envelope of cash and put it in there. And I asked her, I said, mom, why not just go like to the bank? Like there's this bank and that bank just right down the street. And she goes, well, we don't trust banks. I trust my mattress. It was a telling moment for me. The other part was that I saw the rent coming very quickly, even though it was every 30 days for our renters. We, we never bought anything. We would always be renters and we kept moving every 18 months. It felt like the rents came every three or four days. And 
it was painful for me to watch. I wanted to like slow down time. And I remember as an 11, 12 year old boy going down to my knees and saying, you know, dear God, can you slow down time for my mom? And number two, if I ever get an opportunity to trade places with the landlord, I will. And sure enough, 10, 12 years later, I had my first opportunity to buy a, a duplex. I needed a $48,000 down payment. I needed a loan from the bank. I did both. That led to selling it for double and then a fourplex and an eightplex. And then I ended up growing that portfolio to over 10,000 apartment units in 14 states all over the Southeast Sunbelt. I want to dive into all the different investments, but I know somewhere along the way, you touched base with our friend Warren Buffett. And I'm curious to hear the story of how you first met him. Wild story was in 2001, I was the youngest free agent in the market. And so I was drafted 1-1 out of Westminster Christian in 93 as a 17-year-old teenager. And then at 24, I was a free agent. And part of the advantages out of coming out of high school and being in the major leagues at age 18 was that you hit your free agent market much sooner. So at 24, just six years later, I was a free agent. And there was a very healthy market. The economy was doing well in sports. And I got this really large contract, $252 million over 10 years by Tom Hicks. Tom Hicks is a private equity guy, leveraged buyout out of Texas. And because the contract was so big, but specifically because it was so long, 10 years was something that the market hadn't really seen too much of. The last three or four years was almost impossible to insure because there wasn't a lot of comps. So we had no problem the first five to seven years, but Tom Hicks was having a hard time with the last three years. I guess he put word out in the market and Warren basically said, I'll take that piece of paper. I'll insure it. If you wire this much money by tomorrow at 11 o'clock in the morning, you got a deal with Tom Hicks. And of course, I'm nervous because it's, he doesn't insure it. Maybe there's a chance this deal doesn't go through. So Warren makes the offer. Tom Hicks sends the investment. Warren insures my contract. And when I heard that story, I thought it was so cool. I cold called him, Debbie, who's his longtime assistant. I thought I wasn't going to get a call back or anything. Sure enough, they emailed me back. But I emailed them saying, Warren, I understand we're partners. I would love to come see my partners. I want to tell you I'm working really hard and your investment is safe with me. That started a series of trips to Omaha from Miami, where I, would, I went about half a dozen times to Omaha. And it was always the same thing. We would spend two or three hours with me in his office. We would look at the portfolio. He would give me some great broad advice. And then we would have a great dinner. And he always made me finish with a big Sunday. <laughs> then he would tell me, you work hard, you got to protect my investment. That was a running joke. So I know from the first time I met him, I think it was 07, 08, you had recently signed with the Yankees and he had told the story of how he was a little bit involved in that signing and would love to hear that story as well. I was negotiating at the time with the late Hank Steinbrenner, Randy and Hal Steinbrenner. It was my extension to come back because I had opted out. And we were basically stuck at a number and we, we didn't know how to get past it. So I had a lifeline. I'm like, it's Sunday night. What do you do? Well, you call Warren Buffett if you're lucky enough to have him in, in your contact. And it was an incredible phone call. It was probably three and a half minutes. But the first, I always say, Mr. Buffett, he says, that was my dad. I'm Warren. So I said, okay, Warren, we have a problem. And he goes, okay, shoot, let me get a little notebook. And he writes it down. I said, what's the problem? I said, well, we're stuck at this number. The Yankees don't want to go any higher. We have a gap of about $30 million. What do we do? So he literally goes quiet for like 
a minute and a half. I thought he died. I go, what happened? <laughs> Mr. Buffett, are you there? I was late to he goes, no, no, I'm here. I'm just thinking. I'm thinking. Okay, I got it. I got it. I got it. He goes, you go back and tell the Steinbrenner this, and they're going to love it. I said, okay, great. I'm writing that. I'm literally like shaking my hand. I can't like, I'm negotiating with the Yankees and Warren Buffett's helping me. And I'm just like some young kid from Miami who's not very experienced at this. So he says, okay, there's five big records out there. Home run records, Willie Mays. And he goes one by one, Hank Aaron, Barry Bonds, Babe Ruth. So if you hit all those five, and you get a $6 million bonus in each one of them, they will be happy. And I said, okay, great. I love that. Why would they be happy? <laughs> he says, because essentially they should be making 60 million and paying you six. I go, right. That's perfect. So sure enough, I call and I get on the phone and say, I got a great idea. I've been thinking Sunday night. <laughs> and I tell him I was coming from one. <laughs> I said, how about this? How about for the record, starting with Willie Mays at 660, all the way through Babe Ruth and Barry Bonds, if I hit each one of them, you pay me $6 million a piece. If I hit none, you pay me none. If I hit three, you pay me for three. They go, I love that. I'll call you back. So they went to that. They thought about it. They were in Tampa. And they called me back 30 minutes later and they said, we got a deal. And literally two weeks later, we had the press conference. So as you were a player, you met Warren Buffett during that time. I'm curious how you spent your time in such a way that once you were done playing baseball, you were able to explode into the business world like you have? A lot of it is like everything else. I just study it and I've made a bunch of mistakes. One of my superpowers, both gift and curse, has been to dare greatly. And I'll take great, great risk. As I've gotten older, I'm much more averse to that. And I think I'm about more downside protection because I'm at a different stage of my life and, and accumulated a different type of net worth. But I've always been aggressive and, and I've played offense. Two athletes in the particular that became friends and mentors were Magic Johnson and Greg Norman. They were goats on the field, but then they became goats in the boardroom. And I studied them incredibly deep. And both of them are friends and both of them are mentors. I think one of the dinners that kind of shifted my entire career was about 20 years ago when I was with the Rangers. I asked Magic Johnson for a 30 minute meeting and we met for three and a half hours in a restaurant in Beverly Hills. And he basically walked me through his whole roadmap, the good, the bad, and the ugly, and kind of lessons learned in his career. And I've always admired Magic, the way he's gone about his business with his humility, with his networking, and with his ability to and execute institutional type partnerships whether it's Starbucks, 24 Hour Fitness, or AMC Theaters. And I also saw that he had great mentors. So basically, in a nutshell, the two big takeaways was you should always try to do some television when you're done because that'll keep your name and your brand out there with the consumer. And then two, you should do as much public speaking as you can because even though people know you in the sports world, you're going to be a novice in the business community. And I thought those two advices were incredibly powerful. And I've carried through with that advice all the way through. And how about from Greg? Greg, again, another institutional guy, very aggressive, very confident, really understands branding and marketing as well as anybody I've ever met. He spent a long time with me and I didn't understand why. And he, he was hard on me saying, you got to come up with your logo. You got to come up with your logo. I'm like, I first got to come up with a business model that works. 
He's like, yeah, you'll get them. <laughs> the logo is important. Of course, he has the great shark and he has it on his golf courses, on his stakes, on his wine, on his plane, on his job. I mean, but it's just been a great brand. And he was an early guy that got, took stock into the, I think it was King Cobras and made a f- small fortune and then kept building it from there. But he had the foresight to say, don't pay me a fee, pay me an ownership in equity or warrants. And it played out beautifully. And at the time, he was you know, one of the greatest players in the world, if not the best. So a lot of it is kind of big picture vision, branding, and understanding that it's not just cash, but your equity has tremendous value. So once you stopped playing and you really turned to Arod Corp full-time, how did you think about how you wanted to pursue the business and investing world? Number one, I understood the playing field, the gift and the curse of being an athlete, of being someone that's well-known. This is a little bit before all these social influencers. And I kind of sit in, in the middle of media, entertainment, sports, influencer. But what I wanted most was not to have an image. I wanted to really work on a reputation. I wanted to have a world-class championship team. And I wanted to be taken seriously by people like you and your colleagues. And if we went to the Yale Endowment, if I met with you and, and your former boss who passed just a few weeks ago, to be seriously, right? And what, what Magic taught me is like, look, there's not a meeting you couldn't get. But let's be honest, 90, 99 of those 100 meetings, nothing's going to happen besides you're going to sign something, you're going to take a picture, they're going to get a picture for their grandkids, and you're going to get nothing. So before you enter those doors, make sure that you go in with a plan, you can crystallize your story, and you have a team that can actually execute whatever you're promising. And I just thought that was brilliant advice, knowing that as a celebrity or an athlete or an entertainer, you're not going in with no strikes. You're going in with two and a half strikes. Well, there's a big delta between going in with two and a half strikes and choking up and trying to put the ball in play versus thinking that as a 3-0 count, you're a celebrity and the deal's going to be done. And the delta of that is humongous. So I thought that was one of my competitive advantages, having self-awareness of what's the score. So let's go with that game plan analogy. You're now the manager of the team. You're going onto the field. What is that game plan, right? You have a story when you're going in to meet with someone, you might be interested in investment, whatever it is. What have you sort of formulated into kind of what the story of A-Rod Corp is? Yeah, that's a good question. For one is we are a company that I believe under promises and over delivers. I think we are a company that likes to go narrow and deep and not wide and shallow. So part of our challenge when we come in is if Ted wants to do a deal with A-Rod Corp, your first thing you should be thinking about, like, well, Alex, you have a million things to do. You're here, you're there, you're everywhere. How can you really perform? And I think that when you spend time with me and more importantly, my team, you will realize that we have an institutional team that has an incredible track record. And then when you look at our partnerships within real estate or venture, you realize that our track record is impeccable and that if you talk to our founders and partners, they want to do more with us, not less. We like that model where we want to do more with people we like, understand, and trust because trust is the biggest thing and our partners trust us. And that's something that we take a lot of pride in. You take hims and hers as an example is we made an investment, a significant investment about two and a half years ago. The business was valued around $300 million, but it was telemedicine for the masses at an affordable price. Now that resonated beautifully with me because we couldn't afford to go to the doctor once a month or twice a year. I'd go to the doctor once every five years if I was lucky 
And when I had pink eye, my mom would just say, just go to school or go away. Right? <laughs> so to think about hims and hers, I thought, okay, this is really something that's right in our wheelhouse. And then we went out over the next two and a half years and I did this deal with Jennifer. We marketed the company. We told the story both in English and in Spanish. And the Spanish market is one that we really lean into because we understand that market really well and we feel we can move the needle. So that was an investment that went in at $300 million or so. We took it public early this year at $1.6 billion. It went over $3 billion. Market settled. But it's been a really significant win for us and one that <laughs> when we did that, recently the founders came to my house here in Miami and they said, let's work on three or four of the things together. And to me, that's the ultimate compliment. Once you finish the game, that they want to play another game with you. Let's break down some of the aspects of that. So the first you mentioned your team. What is the structure of your team today? So we have three or four main silos and each silo has basically a leader. We run a very flat organization is myself, is Kelly, is Lisa, who runs investment, head of investments. Aaron Knight runs a real estate business with Stuart Zook. I don't micromanage anything. Uh, I'm more of a player coach. I get out of their way because things happen better when I'm out of the way. And I really focus on the VCP part of it, right? The vision, the capital, and the people. They're way smarter than I am. So giving them that room to run is really important to me. The idea behind that, that is that if you execute VCP, vision, capital, people, you can scale in so many different ways. And me as, as a founder and leader of our company, I can go out and do the really big things, whether that's a Warren Buffett or doing things with other type of leaders like Magic with strategy and the vision and finding the capital and the right partners to go out and execute. And I spend a lot of my time recruiting as well. How do you figure out, for you in particular, how you spend your time in terms of the relationship on the outside, and then also wanting to know what's going on in the details of any of the businesses you're investing in? So a lot of it is part of executing BCP, right, is to free you up to really think big. One of the things I challenge my team all the time on is make sure that my schedule has the flexibility for me to go out and think slowly. Matt always talks about slow down to speed up. And in order to slow down to speed up, you need to have that freedom in your schedule. The other thing is I have to be able to think about big ideas and then go out and execute those ideas, whether that's the MBA team we're about to acquire, whether that's our SPAC business, which is we're very, very excited about, or whether it's creating this VCP fund, which we've self-funded so far that we're really excited about. If I don't have time to think about those and really connect on our strategy and our vision, then I'm doing our ARC a disservice. So that's really how I like to think about it. So I would say a third of my time is really finding new opportunities. A third of my time is thinking about capital resources. And a third of my time is by recruiting because we do a lot of recruiting all the time. From the time you spent in baseball, I imagine you've seen a lot of different types of leadership, some more effective than others. And I'm curious what leadership lessons you've taken and distilled in A-Rod Corp as you're overseeing each of those vision capital and people. You know, it's funny. The first time I, I understood what VCP was, was through George Steinbrenner when he brought me to New York in 2004. And he sat down with me and he basically said, look, my vision is very clear. We want to be the greatest franchise in the world, period, end of story. Capital is we're going to great market in New York. We make tremendous resources. We're going to deploy that resources very aggressively. And people, I'm going to find the greatest people in the world and I'm going to overpay them so they're happy and never leave us. So you, my friend, 
better hit home runs and catch the ball and bring me some championships. <laughs> my father, Ted, left at 10. So if somebody's not kicking him in the ass and someone is screaming at me, that means they love me. If somebody ignores me, I worry. As you have members on your team, everybody reacts a little differently. Some people are more sensitive. Some people are tougher. I like athletes because athletes, two things, they don't punch a clock. They just go out and get the job done. And if a deal has to go to three in the morning, you just get that job done. And that's something I've really enjoyed about athletes. There's a passion around that. You have to have economic alignment. And if all those things are right, then nobody minds going to three in the morning because you know that you're in it together. If you win a championship, you're going to be on that float drinking champagne. So th that's a lot of the idea about how we think about being aligned here at ARC. So I want to dive into each of these areas of the business you mentioned. The first thing I want to ask you, though, is about how you go about picking your partners. Because before we get into venture and the SPAC and the Timberwolves, you had a real estate partnership with Starwood and Barry Sternlicht, one of the best in the business. How have you gone about figuring out who you want to partner with in all of these different areas of the business? Yeah, there's a few things, you know, it's like, you know, algorithm and Google, like you see things that just pop up or in your Instagram, there's a certain kind of feel you get. I remember as a young kid, they would throw curveballs right at my face. And every time I would flinch and it would be a strike every time. And then they would throw another one and I would flinch less. And I was 0-2 and I'm like, fuck, I should have swung at that one. But I was 18. They didn't have curveballs like that at Westminster Christian. <laughs> and then they threw me the sucker pitch. The one that looked right down the middle. Now, this one, I didn't flinch. Worse, I swung at it. But that one was in the dirt. And what I realized was I needed to fix this. So I bought a breaking ball machine. And it would throw me curveballs at my face every day. And I saw about 200 of them every day. And what I realized was it was a training of the eye. That once I saw the curveball on my face, think about it. An object is coming at 80, 90 miles an hour at your face. You have to budge. Or you got to be nuts. But when the eye sees it every day in a batting practice, you all of a sudden start getting comfortable with that ball coming in at your jaw. And that's the curve ball that's going to dive into a strike. And that's the home run ball. And then you realize that the one that looks like a strike is going to be a ball. I think the same thing is true in business. You start getting a feel for people, reputation. I'm looking for a few things. One, I'm looking for missionaries, not mercenaries. And then I'm looking for people that have a moral compass that align with mine and ours at ARC. And then the third thing, I'm looking for non-transactional people. I'm looking for people, folks that have a long-term view, that want to build a great portfolio over time, much like Berkshire Hathaway, much like Barry. And uh, that's kind of how I think about it. And then when I find someone that I really like, Ted, and I trust, and I like being around them, then it becomes really easy. Then you figure out ways, like, how do we work together? I don't worry. Like, if I find a great talent, I'll bring them in. And great talent finds their way to bring great value to my company. The same thing with someone, if I trust you, if you're a missionary, if you have a long-term view, whether it's Barry or Mark Mastrov or other ones of my partners, I would say, let's just figure out a way to do more together because we have a lot of fun. And by the way, the more we do together, the more we can vacation together, the more we can hang out together. That's been pretty simple. So let's dive into these three most recent areas of the business. I guess why don't we just start chronologically with Slam Corp and the SPAC was a hot market, cooled off a lot. How are you thinking about that business today? In many ways, we actually like the things that have cooled a little bit because I think the point of entry becomes more challenging. And that's why I'm so happy that we picked Antara as our partner. Number one, 
they have a lot of the virtues that we don't have at ARC. They're very institutional. They have institutional capital. Blackstone is their top investor. You know, they're looking at it from a debt side. So they're very conservative, very wise, very frugal investors, and they're gritty as heck. So I loved all those things. We're very much on the commercial side. We understand the retail market. We can market and brand a story really well. So the institutional gritty Antara with what we do on the front end together, we felt like one plus one equals three. So that, that's kind of how we thought about that. The reason why I didn't want to get into the SPAC market is if we didn't have that institutional arm, then we weren't just going to compete and try to be a B or C. We wanted to do it like everything we do at the highest level. As you look at these opportunities today, it seems that the public market's cooled on SPACs. There are lots of potential businesses, cash flow generated businesses, late stage private businesses looking to go public. How have you thought about who you want to partner with and bring public through the SPAC? We've seen a great deal of opportunities. One of the reasons why we, we like the SPAC market so much for us in particular is because we're a deal flow machine. We see so many companies. If we see, just to say, a number 500 companies per year, more than half of those are coming to us. We're the huntee, not the hunter. So the barrier for entry for us has been institutional capital. And now we have both. So when you marry those, I think it creates a great alpha opportunity for us. How we're seeing deals is through our network. A lot of times you got to go out and create your own opportunities. We're looking at companies, for example, that would not look at a SPAC business, that would look at more of an IPO or an extra round in the private markets. But because of us, there's a consideration and, and we're in some interesting conversations there. But a lot of it is, you know, you have to hustle. You have to go out and tell your story. A lot of entrepreneurs, Ted, to me, they make the mistake of they think because there was one article in the paper that everybody knows their story. But the truth is nobody knows anything about anything. Right? <laughs> they're reading headlines and they're moving headlines. They're, they're sending articles. They haven't even read the articles. I mean, so many people send me an article. I read it. I'm like, oh, I liked it. Did you like this part? Oh, I haven't read it yet. Why'd you send it to me? Right? <laughs> but there's a lot of that going on. So again, if you go narrow and deep and you focus and you tell your story in a crisp way where you can add value to your partners, so many people start meetings and they'll tell you all the great things that they are and all the great things that they need. And they should start the meeting saying, how can we be helpful, hear their story, and then pitch to them. You spend 30 minutes pitching yourself on a SPAC and they're not ready to get SPAC to me. That's you know, 30 minutes of wasted time. So what are the ways that you can be helpful? I want to take a break in the action to tell you about NetSuite by Oracle, helping businesses accelerate growth and run better with a suite of ERP, financial, CRM, and e-commerce products. Here are three numbers for you to remember. 36,000, 25, and 1. 36,000 is the number of businesses that have been upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite turns 25 years old this year. That's 25 years helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, and drive down costs. And 1, because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need, all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance, absolutely free, at netsuite.com slash allocators. That's netsuite.com slash allocators to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash allocators. And now, back to the show. 
I'm sure there'll be more to say about this down the road, but let's turn to the venture business. I know you've done a lot of venture investing previously, and now you're going to do a fund with Mark Laurie. So why don't you walk me through how you got into the venture business, what those investments look like today, and where you're headed with it? Early on, I started probably about a, a decade ago making smaller investments, anywhere from 250 to a million dollars. And a lot of it was knowing that I would make a bunch of mistakes along the way, but I wanted to learn great lessons. And I felt that if I made a good return, not a great return, but I had incredible lessons to learn. As long as I protected my downside, this was an exercise worth doing, especially the last five or seven years of my career. So I started doing that with smaller investments in like Snapchat, VitaCoco, UFC gyms. And I started doing some smaller investing. And then I started really kind of getting my footing. And as I retired, then I kind of hired my team and started rolling up my sleeves and really understanding what is a wheelhouse, where do we bring the most value. And then that's how we got into investments like Hims and Hers and others, because we had the time, the energy, the resources, and the team to allocate to our partners and our founders. And we look at founders just like scouts look at a young Robinson Cano or Derek Jeter or the next great player coming up. We're making bets on founders that we believe in that have VCP in their DNA. What was the impetus for launching a fund instead of continuing to do it on your personal balance sheet? We're doing both. So ARC still has this portfolio of about 40 companies. We're taking about six or seven public this year and 21, probably the same next year. So the market, especially early on, was, was really hot on taking companies public either through an IPO or SPAC. When we looked, Mark and I looked at the market, we saw a soft spot in the zone where a lot of people were not doing what we're doing with, with BCP, which is the following, is we're looking to incubate companies or take companies that are right at the seed level, definitely pre-A. And a lot of these young entrepreneurs, they're going around trying to raise a million or a million five. And Mark and I, if we have the VCP and we feel there's a vision and these young founders or founder is capable of doing something really special, we'll say, forget the one and a half, here's 10. We'll take 40 or 50% of the company today. We'll help you with your vision, make it more clear. Obviously, we're giving you the capital and we'll help you capital in the future. And then we'll go out and bring the right people around to help us reach our goal. So it was done beautifully with Archer. Archer, Mark and I came in sub $100 million. Mark was a big, big investor there. I came in a little bit later and we took Archer from $100 million and it went public at $3.6 billion. And all this happened in less than two years. So we looked at that as taking massive positions on early stage or incubating our companies from the ground up. The one thing about Mark and I, with the 25 years, 50 years between us of experiences, we have an army of people out there, him in tech, me in sports and media, that we know where the best players are. We have a big idea. We put the team together, we fund it, and we bring the people, and there we go. So I'm curious how you think about this spectrum of, you started in real estate, which are all these stable cash flow generating businesses, and then you have venture on the other hand, speculative, you know, aggressive, as you said earlier. Do you put like a portfolio hat on for yourself in ARC and look at these things across the spectrum? The way my brain works, Ted, is I like hedges. The reason why real estate was so on point for me is as I saw it, the average career, as I said, is five and a half years for a baseball player. Well, I was lucky enough to play for almost 25 years. So you can't forecast for me or any human being to play that long, right? That, that would not be fair. So I, obviously I didn't do that. But what I saw is, okay, let's just say I play for 10 years 
And let's just say that I'm 22 when I bought my duplex. I figured that if I bought one asset of real estate a year per year, my competitive advantage was I had very good W-2 income from my teams. And if the real estate, if I'm buying a piece of real estate and I can put some modest debt on it and I bought 10 of them, well, when I was age 32, I would have 10 assets. Over time, they would pay debt down. Over time, they would appreciate in value. They would appreciate in cash flow. So by the time my earning power would wear down, my real estate portfolio would go up. And that was the way I started with real estate around baseball. When I look at venture, it's almost exactly the same drill. Real estate is the cash cow that throws off a lot of cash, nothing sexy, middle of the road. We're buying units from anywhere from 100 to 200,000 per door. We're putting in 75% Fannie Mae, non-recourse debt. We put in 25% equity. We usually refi all our money out in two years and we do it over and over again. Like nothing sexy and exciting about that, but just an incredible cash machine. On the venture side, because of who we are and what we've built and the brand we've built, we feel like we can invest in companies at favorable terms with some downside protection that has an opportunity to be a home run or grand slam. In real estate, we never look at home runs or grand slams. We look at singles and doubles. So again, is an opportunity that if everything implodes here, the real estate will save us and vice versa. And how does a sports team fit into that mix? So let's talk about the Timberwolves. Yeah, I mean, I think it fits in beautifully because if you think about who I am, is I'm an athlete that loves business. And when you think about a team in the NBA blends in all those wheelhouses, first of all, I don't see it as a sports team. Like when you and I grew up, franchise used to go for $15, $20 million, right? It's crazy. The fact that George Steinbrenner bought the Yankees in 1973 from CBS for $10.7 million with a million dollars of equity is like flabbergasting. So I look at these platforms today more like media sports entertainment platforms that are, when you look at the NBA, is a great league, is, is a league that's global, is a league that has tremendous tailwinds, is a league that has young demographics and growing. Africa just opened up, Asia is very big in China, and it has wonderful leadership, a great commissioner, and there's a lot of things to like in the NBA. And what can we do with that franchise? Well, if I did it alone, I probably wouldn't have done it, right? But I have an incredible partner, a 50-50 partner, Mark Laurie, who is a wizard when it comes to tech and marketing and all the things he's done with diapers, jet.com, and Walmart. I, I think together with my sports background and business and what he brings in the tech side and his vision, AI, and other things we're thinking about doing there, I think it's a marriage made to last. I'm curious how you think about the player perspective, given that's your career as an athlete and some of the things that you found productive for success. How can you bring that into a franchise like the Timberwolves? A lot of it is the players are the stars and really making them feel that way. Treating not only them, but their families and their parents and those loved ones around them is really about educating them and setting them up to win. One of the things that Mark and I are thinking about is creating an MBA program for our players that's almost mandatory. And obviously we have to check with the union and players today is not good enough. I grew up, I wanted to be like Kyle Ripken and Dale Murphy and Keith Hernandez. Today, kids want to be like Mark Laurie and Mark Cuban, just as much as they want to be like LeBron James. Now, LeBron James is both because he's a great businessman and a goat on the basketball court. But the truth is, it's not good enough for these young guys or women to be thinking, I'm just going to be an athlete. They want more. 
And I think if you can provide more and treat them where they feel like they are really the star and their families, I think we have an advantage to bring value to them, not only when they're playing, but post their careers. You mentioned earlier about the blessing and a curse of being a celebrity. And I'm curious, as you reflect on that for A-Rod Corp and your investing, what are the benefits and what are the drawbacks of being so well-known? I think the drawbacks, I'll start with that, is I I think they're going to compare you to athletes and entertainers over the last 50 years. And it's so easy to read an article, so easy to say, well, you're an athlete, there's no way you can be sophisticated in business, and so on and so forth. But I got to tell you, I have athletes that are my partners, and there's no better partners that I want to be in a foxhole with. They're smart, they're gritty, they're patient. They have perseverance. They don't quit easy. If you're down, they don't give up on the score. If they're down, they don't whine and complain. I'm here to tell you, athletes are incredibly smart people. And I love standing up for them because I was one and I know what kind of heart and what kind of loyalty they have. And I feel the same way about entertainers. Now, you have to pick one that matches you, someone that has your moral compass, someone that has your vision, long-term vision. And I always tell people, invest less, not more. But with that money, just make sure that you have the ability to stay in for the long haul. And how do you use your celebrity as a benefit in your investments? I don't look at it like that. I think about it as how can I use the platform that I've built over the last 25, 30 years as one of the luckiest human beings in the world to help out your business. I'm hoping that this works out great for you, this podcast. I'm not thinking about like, oh, what can I get out of this? Or like, I'm not in that place in my life. Now, at one point, I was a mercenary because I came up as a broke kid with nothing. And if I didn't make enough capital, then I couldn't help my mother. And my mother was older and I wanted to retire her. But I've kind of entered a point in my life that I've made enough mistakes. I've learned some great lessons to really be a missionary and think about what are the things that I can do to help out my partners. And I just believe if you have that point of view, that prism, I think that in the long haul, you'll do better because there's less pressure. I'm curious what lessons you've learned about branding. Your baseball career had ups and downs and then ups at the end and your business career and what you've been doing has just been a straight up and to the right in terms of the A-Rod brand. What have you learned along the way? I don't really believe in branding. I believe in reputation. Branding to me is short term. When you build a reputation, a reputation for me is to do the right thing when nobody's looking. Reputation is, well, I don't remember the last time that I had to look at a contract and see what my rights were. Well, if I have to do that, it's way too late. I believe in doing the right thing regardless of what the letter says. I believe in fairness. One of the reasons why I put into work the 90% rule is because during my career, we had like the 130% rule, which was if I can sell you this for $1, yeah, I can sell it to you for 140 because I have the hammer and I have the leverage, but that'll be the last deal that I ever did with Ted, right? But if I can sell you this for nine bucks when you know it's worth 10, then not only am I going to create good energy and alignment with you, but you're probably going to tell four or five friends that you actually like doing business with us. And there's a good chance that we're going to probably do three, four, five, 10, 12 deals together. And I'll take 90% on 12 deals. So again, long-term thinking, it just makes it a lot more fun. Where along the path in your career did you sort of get to the point where you were comfortable enough to know that if you just did things your way, things would work out? Well, for me, the big change in my life was the suspension in 2014. That was the toughest time of my life because I made some poor decisions. I surrounded myself with the wrong people. 
and ultimately I had no one to blame but myself. And accountability is a lesson that I had to learn the hard way. And I put myself an entire season, the longest suspension of Major League Baseball history. And that was a tough pill to swallow. But I was really down and out that it was an entire season because I was hoping it was like a third of the season, maybe half a season. It was a blessing in disguise because I needed that entire year. Now think about this, Ted. Ever since I was 15 years old, my high school coach said, you're going to be the number one pick in the country in three years. I looked behind me. I said, who are you talking to? He said, number one pick. Since I was 15. So now you take a sprint from 15 to the time I got suspended. There's a lot of yeses, not too many no's along the way. And my father left at 10. And <laughs> I needed my father to grab my, uh, you know what, kick me in the butt and, and get my ear and just twist it about 50 times. And maybe I wouldn't have been such a knucklehead when I was older. But what I realized was that I needed that year to reset. And a lot of people needed to just kind of do a makeover in your house, paint the windows, paint the walls, fix the roof. And you, you got to go. I needed to tear the entire house down and rebuild it one brick at a time. And through that, I had an opportunity to turn the lens inward and do some real work and try to get an understanding. Why am I screwing this up? I'm the only guy that gets pocket aces and figures out a way to lose. <laughs> and that was like, I laugh at it now and I was crying back then. But you look back and you cringe and you're like, what am I doing? And it took a lot of work that started in 2012. And to this day, I see my therapist twice a week for 90 minutes. And it's the most valuable time of my week, along with my breakfast club that I have with my girls every Saturday night, which I spend another 90 minutes with them. They hate it. I love it. No electronics. And we just kind of dig really deep. But, but to me, when you are always attacking your weakness, your narcissism or your ego or your self-awareness, I think not only do you become a better person, but I think you become a better partner, a better father, a better friend. And look, this thing that I did may cost me the Hall of Fame, and that would suck. But I have no one to blame but myself. But along the way, if I become a better father and a better partner and a better person and a happier person, then that's my pill I have to swallow. What did you do during that year off when you were rebuilding the house? A lot of it was therapy. I broke it probably down into three buckets. The first third, I was basically 40 years old and like washed up. I had two hip surgeries, recent hip surgery. My second one, I just got suspended. I was going to go a year and a half without playing baseball. So the first third was literally, I took a trip like very far away for like two weeks and I was just exhausted. I needed to just like literally decompress. And that was the first part. The second third was writing a lot of wrongs, right? I, I had to go out and contact people that I've let down. So I wrote down on a piece of paper about 12 names of friends, partners, bankers, couple owners that have backed me throughout my career. And I just wanted them to hear from me how sorry I was and how I let them down. I'm going to serve my suspension. I'm going to be very, very quiet. But along the way, I'm going to do work on myself and basically thank you and I'm sorry. And I would just hang up. It was about a three-minute phone call. 
in that middle third was getting my body back to see if it was going to react to play major league baseball to be able to see hit 95 miles an hour fastball i'm 40 two hip surgeries two knee surgeries a pariah nobody wanted me back they put a pole out and 90 percent of new yorkers thought i wouldn't make the team and that was like pretty accurate and then the last third was kind of getting into baseball shape which meant live hitting fielding and see if i can make this comeback the interesting part of the entire year was those 12 phone calls that i made when i was in the black hole in my darkest moment all 12 phone calls today are still my friends my partners and they signaled to those phone calls as the thing that really kind of cemented our trust and our friendship and our partnership. And the reason why is because they said they wouldn't hear from people when uh, it wasn't a winning day. And the lesson there for me was that even when things are really dark, you can turn a negative situation into a positive one. I want to ask you a couple of my closing questions. Before we do that, I know you're recently honored by the Boys and Girls Club and you've spent a lot of time taking all that mentoring that you were given early on and passing it forward to others. How do you think about that and how are you involved in sharing the lessons you've learned along the way? To me, the Boys and Girls Club has been a lifesaver. You know, I mentioned my father left us and I was left with my, with a great cast. So a threesome of my mother, my sister, Susie, and my brother, Joe. I looked at mom was like the president of the house my brother Joe was a secretary of sports. My sister Susie was secretary of education and they all played their roles beautifully. And I've always had to kind of put things in my mind where I can visualize it and touch it. So the boys and girls club for me was definitely a lifesaver because that's where I went every day after school. It kept me away from trouble in the streets and gave me a place where I can do my homework and learn how to play baseball formally. I continue to be very involved with the club because again, it is a lifesaver for so many. And then my other part is the University of Miami and putting 40 kids through the University of Miami. And my goal is to put 400 or 4,000 kids of kids like me that are brown skin, come from single families and modest backgrounds. Well, Alex, super interesting. What do you hope A-Rod Corp looks like 10 years from now? When I think about the conversation I had with George Steinbrenner in 2004, he was laser focused on building dynasties. He had just finished one in the late 90s with the Yankees. They won three championships in four years or four championships in five years. I want to build a dynasty, a dynasty that looks like the private version of Berkshire Hathaway, portfolio of great companies that throw off a lot of cash that increase over value over time. With that, I want to build a championship team with a championship culture and have something that I can be proud of. I can leave to my daughters and my grandkids. All right, Alex, a couple of closing questions, then I'll let you go. What is your favorite hobby or activity outside of work and family? Well, staying in the shower. No, I'm a terrible. <laughs> I would like to say I like to dance if I have a couple of pops and maybe golf. I love golf. What's your most important daily habit? I would say working out and meditating. I think part of wanting to live a a great long life and get a chance to spend time with your kids and your grandkids and your family is being healthy and working out is such a big part of my life as an athlete. And then meditating to be able to talk about what Matt talks about is slowing down to speed up is to really get that mojo in that zone. What's your biggest pet peeve? I really, really do not like laziness. And I hate when people don't take accountability. I don't like excuses. How about on the investment side? What's your biggest investment pet peeve? 
I'm just an old school fundamental guy. As a result, I miss a lot of great opportunities. I don't like to speculate. I like predictability. And, you know, something that Warren's taught me, predictable cash flow, predictable management team, things that you can actually control. What two people have had the biggest impact on your professional life? Wow, great question. I can answer that with like 20. I would say Mark Mastro from 24-Hour Fitness. He's a partner in a bunch of things that we've done together. Mark is also a partner of the Sacramento Kings. He owns Crunch. He owns USC. We're partners in a bunch of stuff. Great guy, great family guy. His, his wife, Mindy, and his four kids kind of grew up with my kids. We own a place together down in Mexico. And he's just a wonderful guy who I trust and has given me great advice over the, over the years. The other one's a little tougher. I would just say, just because of, as of late, I'll give you two more. Mark Laurie, because we're, we're doing so much. I mean, we're like speed dating. And uh, it's kind of been a marriage that was like love at first sight. And we're very complimentary to each other and hit the ground running there. But I would say Mary Ordos from uh, JP Morgan is someone who I, I see as a great friend and a mentor and someone who will always give me the best advice. And I trust her 100%. We may have touched on this one earlier, but what's the biggest mistake you've made and what did you learn from it? The suspension, obviously, that's the biggest by far, but I mess up a lot. So there's a couple of second and thirds. <laughs> How about biggest investment mistake? I'll give you the themes of why. I think just being in a rush, feeling like I'm going to miss something and not really looking at the underlying business, sometimes understanding that it's just more than an idea. My space was first Facebook one. So it's not just the ideas, the team to be able to execute that idea. What teaching from your parents has most stayed with you? I think humility, never giving up for my mother. And what I've learned as of late is, again, this is a little bit post-suspension, levity and not taking yourself so seriously. That's been, boy, I wish I had that for all my time in New York. All right, Alex, last one. What life lesson have you learned that you wish you knew a lot earlier in life? Understanding that I'm enough. I don't need anything else than what I have. And, uh, at some point, I've done this many times where I say, hey, I just put my hands up, but I can't get there. I'm sorry. And you feel so much better when you can do that. Great. Alex, again, thanks so much for taking the time. Thank you, Ted. Thanks for listening to this episode. I hope you found a nugget or two to take away and apply in your investing and your life. If you'd like what you heard, please tell a friend and maybe even write a review on iTunes. You'll help others discover the show, and I thank you for it. Have a good one and see you next time.